Hello everyone, my name is Paloma Ortiz Lopez, the founder of Avantgarde International and a career specialist. Welcome to the Diary of a Female Leader, the podcast in which we will share the journey of a variety of female leaders that are thriving in what people know as male-dominating environments. Thank you for listening. everybody. Hello, Michelle is uh, our next guest today. How are you, Michelle, today? Hi, Paloma. Thank you. I'm wonderful. Thank you so much. So, Michelle, thank you so much for making time. It took us a little while. We, we had a couple of, of conversations on the go. You, you were a very busy woman, but I'm really, really excited about having you in the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and so much has happened since we spoke originally. So it's perfect timing. Excellent. I'm so keen to hear all, all this news. <laughs> so, uh, Michelle, first of all, I'd like to give our listeners a little bit of uh, an understanding, although a lot of, of them, I think they, they will recognize you and they know you already, but I always like to, to present our guests. So, Michelle Ashby is the CEO and founder of ACE LLC, Ashby Consulting Enterprises LLC. Here, her focus is on educating, supporting, and teaching women on how to attain corporate board positions through her unique program, the ACE Board Certification for Women. Ms. Ashby has a diverse background, which includes 30 years as a gold specialist and analyst, financial expert, independent corporate director, and successful entrepreneur. She was awarded one of the top five most powerful women in business in Colorado for uh, 2019 by the Colorado Chamber of Commerce for Women for her work in training a thousand women to get on corporate boards. She's a subject matter expert on board governance, finance, and strategy. Mish Asby has an extensive board experience as an independent director with collective corporate boards experience of 20 years on six corporate boards, and I think that we're adding some more <laughs> recently, as well as over 20 years of non-profit trade association board experience. She founded Danny's Foundation, a non-profit organization in memory of her daughter, which contributed over $1 million for wing cancer research over, over 15 years. She has also founded Danny's Home in Limestone, in Zambia, to house and protect sexually abused girls. She's also, she finds time, is author of three books and a former ultra-athlete. I found that amusing, Michelle. Michelle is the first woman in North America to row 24 hours on a Concept 2 rowing machine. A total of 211 and 36 meters in 24 hours, Michelle. That was have been exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> it was exhilarating. I had a lot of endorphins then by going through that. <laughs> Excellent. Impressive career. I actually left some bits out because I didn't want to, to have half of the, of the time talking about your bio, but impressive career. And today, Michelle, I'd like to go through the journey of, of all those years from the start and, and that's, you know, for the people that have listened to our past episodes it always starts with, you know, what did you want to be when you were a child? So what did Michelle Ashby want to be when you were a child? 
I want it to be a lot of things. So this is such a great question because when I work with women, one of the things I think about is where did where did our confidence come from? And the person that I could look at the most was myself. And my best girlfriend growing up, she, we've been friends since we were very little. She said to me a few years ago, she said, you know, Michelle, I can tell you what a person will be like as an adult by the time they're five years old. And I was in disbelief. I was like, no, I don't believe that. But when I started doing this work and trying to figure out where our confidence came from, I thought about who is who was Michelle as a five-year-old? And I had this memory right away, you know, of seeing my, you know, a new family move in a couple houses away and that they had a little girl about my age and that I wanted to, you know, get to know her and find a new playmate. So as soon as my mom gave me the permission, I went out, I went out the front door by myself across the busy street, knocked on the door, asked, you know, a woman opened and I said, hi, my name's Michelle. I live in the red house over there. And I noticed that you have a little girl who might be my age. I'm five years old. And I wanted to know if she could come out and play. Amazing. And the mother said, I do. She's five. Her name is Gloria and she can come out and play. So Gloria came out and played with me. And she is now my lifetime friend. She's the one who said to me, I can tell you what a person will be like by the time they're that age. So when I look that, break that down and who am I as an adult, I am adventurous. I'm observant and I'm, I'm courageous. I'm not afraid to knock on strange doors. I've traveled the world and met new people. And, you know, I go for, I find a need and I fill it. If I want something, I go for it. So I'm a true entrepreneur. But to give you an idea, those are my characteristics, right? As a little kid, I wanted to be a cowboy, number one. I don't know if that surprises you, but I used to watch cowboy shows and they didn't have cowgirls running the show. So I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to be an astronaut because it was at the time when we were landing on the moon and there was so much excitement there. And I'd pretend that I, you know, I'd put a football helmet on my brother's football helmet and, you know, make a tent out in the backyard and pretend like I was flying into outer space and that type of thing. Cause I like the adventure and the discovery piece of life. So that was another element of what I wanted. And then my mom and I used to watch the, you know, Miss USA pageant every year. My mom was really into fashion. She was a model before she got married. And not only was it about fashion, but it was one of the few things where you could see women in a competition, in a leadership role. Like, you know, they had to have a talent. It wasn't just about being pretty or wearing a, you know, looking great in a swimsuit. It was also about, can you answer big questions about world peace and that kind of thing. So we didn't have a lot of that kind of thing on television back then. I know it's hard to imagine, but I think, you know, those, those were things. And of course my parents influenced me quite a bit, but I didn't have a specific thing that I wanted to be mm -hmm. when I grew up. Okay, I, don't, I hope that answers your question. You wanted to be many things. You were very active, I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Very That's... curious. Like, I re really wanted to learn about different things for sure. Mm -hmm. And I guess that Michelle grew up, and it's time to decide what, what degree or what college to go to. So, how was that decision making process, and how did your parents, family, or, or the, the system that, that you had around you support you in your choices? Right. So, I, I grew up and I live still in Denver, Colorado. And 
But I went to Catholic schools. I was raised Catholic and influenced that way quite a bit. And then, of course, parents and peers and teachers and that type of thing. My high school years were at a private girls' school. And to give you an example of the caliber, you may have heard of Condoleezza Rice, who was a former Secretary of State for the United States. Mm-hmm. She was a year ahead of me in this, in this school. So we had small classes. The expectations were was that all of our, our young women would become you know, pretty substantial in whatever they chose in their careers. I decided to go into nursing, surprisingly enough. And I went to nursing because my friend was going there. Again, I'm curious. I didn't have, I didn't have like a specific thing in mind. And I only lasted a semester. And the reason was because when I worked in the hospital, I got sick. I caught staph, I caught strep, you know, and I was very, my immune system was not in great shape. And so I only lasted a semester. And to be honest with you, I liked working. I grew up in a middle-class family. This school cost money. And my parents said, you can go to school, but you have to, you have to pay half. And so from the age of 12, I worked. And when you're 12 years old, you have a limited, you know, landscape of what you can choose to work in. So I started working in greenhouses on all the, all the school breaks and in the summertime. And that's how I afforded to pay for my uniform and half of my tuition. And I also got a grant, a scholarship at the school. So I stayed after school and cleaned chalkboards and that kind of thing. And you know what? I loved it. It wasn't like I was less than anyone else. It was that I wanted this. And so I was going to do whatever I could Mm -hmm. to figure it out and get, get through it. But we were not taught, you know, sewing and comb economics. It wasn't an ex- expectation that we'd get married and have children. So, you know, they were very career oriented. And because I worked and I had the experience of having a paycheck and knowing what money could do, mm-hmm. I wanted to work more. So when I dropped out of school, I actually got a second job. I got a, another full-time job. And actually, I was working full-time when I was going to school. Sorry. And I it was still in the in I was in retail at that point in time because I was in high school and I added a second job. So I, then I was working 60 hours a week. I got an apartment with my girlfriend who I mentioned earlier, <laughs> Gloria, and we had a great time, you know. So so that's what we did. I met my first husband while I was working there and I married very young and had children. So my pathway to my career and to my university it was quite different than most people. I took a different route for sure. So I had my children, my marriage, unfortunately, that first one didn't work out. And after eight years, we we decided to, to divorce. And then I became a single mom. And that's at the point where I had become a stockbroker. And you're like, well, how did she do that without a college degree? It's because I figure out how to do things, right? <laughs> I just, I looked for careers that didn't require a college degree. And at that time, you didn't have to have one. You did have to have a sponsor from a brokerage firm that would help you. But remember, I went to a private girls' school with people who came from very high-end families, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And a couple of those ladies, their fathers were in this brokerage industry. So I reached out to one of them, used my network, got to talk to one of the dads. He said, 
we'd love to sponsor you. So go take your exam. And so I studied for the exam and took it and I passed it the first time. So I was offered a number of positions because back then the firms were looking for women. It was at a time in the United States where we were in the equal opportunity zone. And so companies had to have a certain quota of women that were in their workforce. So they were anxious to have women and there weren't many. So I found that little window and I got to pick where I wanted to work. So that's how I ended up being a stockbroker, which is kind of interesting. And then, you know, I'll skip over some of that, but fast forward later on in my life, my cousin was an administrator at a university in Denver. It's a Catholic university here. And she was constantly bugging me like, Michelle, you are so accomplished. You could get your degree. Why don't you go to school? You could challenge it. <laughs> and so I went to, I went and did that. I challenged the degree and it took me a long time to get the degree because I was working full time. And in that, in that interim, my daughter actually was diagnosed with cancer and we went through that journey, unfortunately. She, she did not survive, she passed away. So there was a like three year break there. So it took me about seven years mm -hmm. to complete my degree, even though I challenged, I, you know, I was testing out. I wasn't going to classes. I was taking tests and, and testing out that way and getting credits, but I got my undergrad in finance. Ultimately, I graduated magna cum laude and I also won the community service award. So I got a, you know, got a donation for our foundation for that. And then um, I also was invited to the honor society. So I thought, hey, wait a second, this education thing is pretty cool. Like they, they put you on stage a lot and you get a lot of recognition. <laughs> so that's how I ended up getting my degree. So my path was quite different than what you would normally see with people. Excellent. And, and I think that's a, that's a good example for, for our listeners because traditionally, and I think I was telling you this, you know, of the record, we think of young girls that are deciding their career, but also, you know, this podcast could be useful for other women that, you know, perhaps their, their career path was going one way and, and maybe they're discovering other options along the way. So you're not a broker anymore. We've seen your bio and, and you took other, other opportunities and, and here you are today, you know, sitting in many boards of directors. And, and, you know, I'm really keen trying to, to link up, you know, where, where you were explaining to the current journey or how I actually got to come across yourself is because you're linked to the mining industry, right? So how was that journey coming from, you know, that stage that you were describing and getting your, your degree? to landing into the mining space and how did you feel about you know the industry when when you first arrived yes so i came from the i came from the investment side right so i didn't understand a lot about it but i was a rookie stockbroker which means that you are we used to call it smiling and dialing we'd have to call 100 people a day and talk to them on the phone and try and convince them to do stock trades and open accounts with us it was really great training it was really hard but it was fantastic and what they would do is they would give rookie stockbrokers at the firm they'd give us what they called dead accounts which means these were people who who opened an account, bought something or bought some, bought a bunch of different things, but they, you know, they didn't, they didn't make money. Everything kind of went in the toilet. So they would give us those and say, can you like 
regenerate these people. So they gave me a lot of these accounts and they many of them had had invested in small penny mining stocks that at the time looked really promising but were currently not trading, you know, they were at a loss basically. <laughs> and so through that process of talking to them, like I'd, I'd get a, a hold of someone and they'd say, well, what's happening with ABC Gold Company? And I'd be like, I don't know, but I'll find out and I will call you back. And I would hang up the phone. I'd look it up. We didn't have the internet. We had to use this book <laughs> that had phone numbers in it back then <laughs> called a telephone book. Yeah. And we would, I would look it up and I would, you know, call the company and talk to the president. And I'd say, you know, I'm a stockbroker. I'm talking to one of your shareholders. They have questions. Can you answer these for me? And I'd get the answers and I'd call the person back and say, I spoke to John Smith and ABC Gold and here's what he said, blah, blah, blah. So through that process, two things happened. One is that I got to know a lot of the company presidents because there was no one else calling them and asking them these questions. They were like, who is this person who's interested in me? Nobody's calling, you know, my phone's not ringing, but this person is. So they were interested in me. Secondly, the, the type of person who buys gold stocks is called a gold bug. And they have a different philosophy about their investing. And they taught me a lot. And I really was enamored with their reasons for investing. You know, it wasn't just to make money. It was because they were also aware of the value of the dollar. They aware, were aware of the, the status of the banks. They were aware of government policies and economics and those kinds of things. And they became my teachers. I also recognized when I looked at the landscape, because I was in a bullpen, what they called a bullpen, so 50 or 60 or more brokers all in one big room, all on phones, talking to people. And they were generalists, like nobody was specializing in anything. And I thought, oh my gosh, for me to be a really effective broker, it's going to take me forever to learn everything about every stock. And I decided and I, you know, talked to my boss and said, what do you think about me specializing just in mining? Like, I'll take all the dead accounts. You can give them all to me. And they said, yeah, you can have them. In <laughs> fact, we're going to run advertisements and we're going to we're going to run advertisements and see if we can attract more investors and we'll give all those leads to you and you just work them. And so one thing led to another. And again, I developed these relationships with the companies and they started educating me. So I would, after I was asked all these questions, they, they were teaching me about the mining sector. They invited me on mine tours. So I was able to get on the ground and learn about that. I was, I, I met mining analysts and that's when I became a mining analyst. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I actually learned what they knew and I became a mining analyst and then I was hired by another brokerage firm eventually and I was their official gold mining analyst. So I was publishing, I had articles that I wrote in publications all the time and my goal was to become one of the top 10 brokers in the United States in um, specifically in mining, which I did, I accomplished. Well done. And how do we transition from being a top broker, top analyst onto your first board position? Well, it was about an 18 year break there. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I went from being a mining analyst and recognizing as I talked to companies in the United States and Canada, because I clearly was investing in Canadian mining stocks as well for my clients. And as I attained more, you know, acknowledgement from the industry and got to know people, I recognized that there was a need for more marketing, more positive marketing for mining companies in order to attract capital. And so that was where the idea of the Denver Gold Group came about. And so I, I founded that and in the late 80s and ran that organization for almost 20 years. So that's when I was in that position of the CEO of the Denver Gold Group, I was working directly with the CEOs of all the producing gold mining companies that were publicly traded around the world and their largest institutional investors. Mm -hmm. So through that process, I got to know them, but they got to know me. I was a familiar name. I was a familiar face here in the States as well as in Europe because I organized very successful European conference that's still going on today. And the Denver Gold Group is in its 34th year, I believe. So it, it is an institution and is very well recognized in the industry. But through that process is how I ended up on my first board. Excellent. And, and what did you think of a board position when you, when you arrived there? What were your first impressions? And you know, what was your, your impact no, as, a, as a person coming in from, from the outside? So my first board uh, position was in 2005 and I was running the Denver Gold Group. I had no idea that I was a board candidate. It was literally a phone call. And as I said, I knew a lot of the CEOs, they knew me. So I had a lot of relationships and I would get phone calls constantly, you know, from people, can you help with this? Can you help with that? Whatever. And I was on the golf course actually, and my phone rang and I answered it and it was, Rob McEwen, one of my friends. And he said, listen, Michelle, I just bought controlling interest of a company and I wanted to see if you want to be on my board. And I was like, yeah, love to. I didn't know what that, what that entailed, but I entrusted that it would be, it would be great. And so I joined the board of, at the time it was called US Gold. We, we changed the name over a period of years. And there were only four, there were four there. Well, he asked me, he said, do you know anybody else that you would recommend? And I recommended my colleague, Leanne Baker. So Leanne and I were on the board with two gentlemen. So there were four, only four of us at the very beginning. It was a tiny company along with Rob. And to be honest with you, I was a sponge. So I didn't know what to expect. We didn't have any onboarding. But what we did have were legal counsel and, and accountants. And I relied on them for guidance as well as other directors. Mm-hmm. Leanne had not been on a board yet. I think it was her first board as well. But the gentlemen had been on a couple of boards and they were very forthcoming with their support and help. And frankly, it was really just about having attorneys tell you what you can and cannot do. I knew what the regulations were because I came from the the brokerage side. So that helped a lot. And I understood markets really well. Mm -hmm. And I, so here's the thing. I looked at it like my role was to be there as a thought leader and help with strategy. And as we came up with our strategies and we were, you know, addressing how are we going to do this? It was, it was a collaborative conversation about, 
what ideas we had and then making a decision about what ideas would be the best. And sometimes we'd have ideas that the attorneys were going, you can't do that. And we'd be like, oh, okay, let's do another one. Let's Mm -hmm. try another one, you know. But these were not unfamiliar conversations for me because my role has been talking to CEOs and having these kinds of conversations for decades before I got in the room. So it was a pretty comfortable place for me. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so I felt like I was still bringing the kinds of things that I'd already been in conversation with, whether it was about just the company, or maybe it was about the marketplace, what's the perception of the shareholders, Mm -hmm. or maybe it was about where can we go? Maybe it was about environmental issues. Maybe it was about challenges for the entire industry and how do we become a leader? And I felt like I was in the right place with Rob because he was such an innovator. He really is known for going, you know, out there and trying stuff before anybody else. He had done the, you know, the the Gold Corp challenge before when he was running Gold Corp. And I supported him wholeheartedly when I was running the Denver Gold Group and gave him a platform to launch that at one of our annual meetings and, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, there were lots and lots of ways that I felt really comfortable and that I I felt like I was bringing value to the table. Excellent. And you kind of responded, but I always like to emphasize on the, you know, support system networking. And I asked you the question at the beginning about your parents, family supported you in your early choices, but how were you supported to reach these positions? You mentioned the the gentlemen that were, you know, around in that board, but was anybody else around? Yeah. So I think if we back up a little bit into like, how did I end up in mining and how did I get, you know, to become one of the insiders basically in the good old boy network? And I'll tell you what, I think that whether I was male or female, I would have been identified as someone to mentor because I was interested. I was curious. I was asking questions. I said, yes, I can help, you know, I was connecting people where I could. But I, as I was doing those phone calls to companies and talking to the CEOs and saying, what's your company like? I ran into a number of gentlemen who helped me. Like one of the CEOs, he lent me his college, you know, his college book on, you know, on mining techniques. And I would study that at night. You know, I'd be reading about heat bleach processes and stuff like that after my kids went to bed. It was as simple, some of the things as simple as that, or inviting me to a conference. So one of the first mining conferences I went to was in Spokane, Washington, 600 guys and me, I was the only woman, Mm -hmm. you know, attendee, there were women serving food, but I was the only attendee. But this gentleman, Bill Green, I'll never forget, he was a professor, but he also ran a, a small mining exploration company. He said, come on up, Michelle, and I'll introduce you to some people. Be sure and bring a lot of business cards. And so I went to this conference and he literally, you know, at the first cocktail reception, he said, make sure you have your cards with you. He literally stood next to me and he said, Michelle, shake his hand, this man's hand. This is Jim Jones from, you know, XYZ Mining Company in Vancouver, Canada. And, you know, this is Michelle Ashby. And he stood there and did the introductions. He's like, hand him your card, get his card. And he walked around the room with me and introduced me to people and showed me how to network appropriately with this particular group. 
So what's important to hear for women is that we're, it is a cultural difference, you know, and so if we're open to that and to, you know, into emulating it, and I know a lot of people are like, I'm not going to be a man. I'm not asking you to be a man. I'm asking you to fill it, fit into the culture and to be honor, honor it and respect it. And so, you know, Bill became a great supporter of mine. And I met gentlemen at that first conference that became my friends for my entire career and supporters. Mm -hmm. So again, it was about my interest in what they were doing, interest in the industry, asking questions and, you know, and saying yes when I was asked to do a favor or connect people, you know, together. And of course, I was on the financial side, which meant that they wanted to know me because if I, I had some power, right? If I wrote a positive article about their company, it could affect the price of their stock in a positive way. If I wrote negative, it could affect it the other way. But that's what mining analysts do. So I, I attained my own respect because of my position and the fact that I was managing, you know, multi-millions of dollars in my own book of my own clients that were investing in these different companies. Excellent. And we were talking about your first board. We fast forward. I mentioned in the bio that you you have been or you are in, in six different corporate boards, but I think you have news for us. Oh, yes, I have served on six boards. I was on the McEwen board for 17 years. I stepped back last year only because because I love that company and I know that I continue could continue to bring a value. I just felt from a governance standpoint, it was it was important for me to step back because the regulators are looking at these kinds of things, like how what's your tenure and that type of thing. And I did replace myself with another ACE graduate there. So since then, I that was my last public board that I was on. I have been invited to another publicly traded board, but it hasn't been announced yet. So that'll be, I think, number seven for me, but I've been on clean tech company, private company board, and then the rest of them have been all in the, in the mining sector, mm -hmm. lithium, you know, lots of different kinds of mining, Monet, which is a gold jewelry, investment jewelry company. So all kind of related into that space, utilizing my background, my network and my market expertise. Excellent. And what do you love about being in boards and, and, you know, you created ACE because I guess you wanted other women, I've read this uh, somewhere, you wanted other women to experience what you love so much about being in boards. So yeah. what, what is it that, that you enjoy a lot and, you know, you think that, you know, others could enjoy as well by being in boards? Well, what I like the most is that constant, you know, the thing that I had, that I have been doing throughout my career was having those collaborative conversations. What are the problems? How are we going to solve it? What are the ideas that we're going to come up with? What kind of resources do we have in order to address that? And you know, you're always you're always capital, you know, cost constrained in the mining sector. They you always need more money to do whatever you're doing to develop a project. So there's never a lack of challenge. And that's one thing I really like about the mining sector. I always did, even when I was an investor, the price of gold could affect it. The environmentalist could affect it. You know, all kinds of things could affect what was happening with with the either a specific company or the entire industry right so it was never boring and i like if you like to think you really have to think it's a challenge for everything that you've 
accomplished, everything that you've experienced in your career when you're at in the boardroom, right? Because you are you want to be surrounded with other members who have different backgrounds and listen to what their ideas are. And then, you know, I like to kind of listen first and then see if there's anything that I can add that is something that maybe they haven't thought about. Now, when you join a board, like I'm going to join a new board, I don't know all the history there. So it's going to take some time for me to learn about what, you know, have you tried this before? Have you, you know, have you talked to investors in this particular market before? Have you had introductions to private equity groups? You know, all of those kinds of areas that I won't know until I've been on the board for a while. But what has happened is I've met women who have incredible backgrounds and they are brilliant and they have they have the brilliance. They also have the experience. And I think, you know, as we get into our career, especially like when we're in 20, 30 years, it's like, what can I do to that will utilize everything that I've gone through Mm -hmm. and being on a board is the perfect place for you to bring that, that collective experience to the table and then to, you know, to feel like you have purpose, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you, it's pretty basic human stuff, right? (laughs) There's a purpose here. I have a value and people are listening to what I have to say. And I'm a vote. I'm a vote. Mm -hmm. I could influence people. I could try and get this mining industry to be using more clean energy on all their mine sites. I could influence this company if they aren't in pay equity to make sure that they put in something in place where we have equal pay for everyone based on, you know, their tenure, their gender, all of that. Mm -hmm. It has to, you know, there's so many things that we can affect once we get into that room where those big decisions are being made. And I like to be the boss. <laughs> and I like to talk um, about a sport training programs. We we kind of been you know having some snaps at at the the training programs. But I like you. I remember a little story you told me when we first met about how you started this new venture. Would you be able, please, to to share this story with our listeners? Certainly. So as you introduced me, you people would recognize I spent 30 years in two male-dominated industries, in mining and finance, and there were not many women around. I mentioned Leanne Baker. She's one of a handful of women that I trusted and that I co- would call my female colleagues throughout my career because women stabbed me in the back as anybody had that happen along the way, right? So I was curious. In 2016, I was actually looking for a couple more boards myself to have a portfolio of boards and then semi-retire and, you know, have more time in my life and be, you know, financially not worry about things because of the compensation on the boards. But there was all this, you know, media coverage, like there aren't enough women on boards. I was like, I don't get it. Like, why aren't you on boards? Like, I thought women were out there working like me and getting these places and that it was fine. Mm-hmm. So being the analyst that I am, I decided to start asking. And I started asking people, can you introduce me to any woman that you know that's a leader, leadership, you know, in a company or organization. So I started getting these introductions. I interviewed about 200 women over 18 months and I asked them three questions. Why aren't more women on boards? Why aren't you on a board? And tell me about your background. 
And through that process, I learned that these women were pretty spectacular. I even had a file. I called it super women. <laughs> I'd take all my notes and I'd put it in this file when I came home and I'd be like, this is going to be a book someday because I'm blown away by who these women are and what they've done. And I felt like they were qualified to be board members, but I also recognized there were big gaps of what they did not know that I did. Mm -hmm. And so I was at the time a member of a peer advisory group and I was in my meetings, you know, and I, you know, we'd go around and talk about kind of what we were working on career wise. And I always would call this, you know, interviews with the women, my woman thing. And one of the guys in the group said, hey, Michelle, why don't you do something about that woman thing you talk about? Because you light up when you start talking about it. <laughs> and that kind of flipped a switch. So not long after that, I woke up in the middle of the night. I could not go back to sleep because my brain was going like, okay, woman thing, woman thing. <laughs> and I got a legal pad out and I said, I'm just going to get up and I'm going to write it down. And I spent the entire night filling that legal pad with if I, the question I asked myself, if I were to do something about this, what would it look like? So I wrote everything out. What would I charge? Who's my ideal client? You know, what kind of characteristics does she have? What does the curriculum look like? How long would it take me to teach them? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's pretty much how it got launched. I did some more research to find out what else is out there to train women. And I found that it was pretty pathetic. Like there really weren't many programs that were out there to train women. But deep down inside, I knew that there was something special that I had that probably other training programs wouldn't have, which is this fact that I'd been raised by men. And I always kid with people and say, I'm really a 63-year-old white guy in a woman's body because I think like them. I do deals like them. You know, I function in many ways in the business world like men and because I was trained by them and they considered me to be part of the good old boy network. So if I were to take that and bottle it and put it in to this program, that would be extremely helpful for the women to know. What's extremely helpful is to teach them this inside culture, the culture in the boardroom and the culture in the executive suite. And that's what I've added into the program when I developed it. So we have, of course, we have the board governance, financial acumen, what are your risks and responsibilities, but we also cover gender dynamics in the boardroom. And I go through about 20 exercises with people to build up this other side, which is to develop that confidence in them at the executive boardroom level. And I'm not, and women are, we're confident. It's just this different, the nuances, the, the, the slight nuances that are so important to know when you are in the boardroom, when you are talking to people at the executive level mm -hmm. in the, you know, that are gentlemen. So that's what I did. And I think that's a very important point. And if you allow me a little kind of personal example, not long ago, I was talking to a woman, very accomplished lady, very smart, educated, and she, she had a first board, exper board experience a few months before this conversation happened. And she was telling me that she felt very uncomfortable, you know, walking in the room and there was only two two women in that room and she was feeling uncomfortable and I didn't really know what to to say to her but I'm going to ask you the question what to say to this lady Michelle 
Yeah, well, I will tell you that my job when I work with my ladies is to make sure that they feel confident and competent the first time they step their toe in the room. And they do. And she didn't have the opportunity to have that experience before because you can't Google it. It's not anything that you can do that way. But we do a full day of board role play in my program so that you're assigned to the board of directors of a company. You're assigned to two committees. We talk about all that. I also have a gentleman who has been, been such a champion for us who allowed me to tape him who talks about gender dynamics in the boardroom and how to behave and what we're saying with our body language as women when we're in the room. I learned a lot from him. Trust me. I changed some of the ways that I behaved in the boardroom because he pointed out subtle things that I had no idea that were sending messages when I was when I was interacting with other board members myself. So you need to have the secret sauce. Mm -hmm. That's the answer to the question. And it's not her fault. Here's the bigger thing, right? Like women have not get gotten this information men have been mentored into this for hundreds of years if not thousands and we have not so i see this as a bigger issue where it's important for women to just have this basic education of what this is about and that it's available to them if they so choose but you know it is a secret sauce kind of thing <laughs> so that's my bigger you know, my bigger mission, I think, in life, not just to train a thousand women to get on corporate boards, but to also educate women as to what this is about and let them in on the big secret so that they don't have that feeling of being uncomfortable. Now, I've been the only woman in the room for many, many years, so I have a lot of practice and I don't know where she came from. She may have been very familiar. She may have come from a, a position where there were more women around than men. And that would be uncomfortable. I would have been the opposite. If it was more women than men, when I, in my first board, I probably would have been uncomfortable the other way. So these are things that we have to kind of look at on an individual basis and not be so, you know, general about the answers for things because the, these are unique situations. And so we try and prepare. I try and prepare you for the majority of the kinds of situations that you would walk into. Mm-hmm. Sounds sounds very very interesting. I think it was it was needed. I, I don't think that uh, there was something around. And I've been researching, you know, around my, my career on, on what was out there. And I found your program very very complete and you know full package, very pragmatic approach to to a situation. Yeah, let's go a little bit. You know, we we've been talking through the journey of of your career, but I would like to link now your presence with uh, of what your presence with your with your child that wanted to be an astronaut and and so many other things. So, what would Michelle today would tell a young Michelle? You know what? You're perfect just the way you are. That's what I would say. You're Simple perfect just the way you are. You know, <laughs> life is going to be life is going to be life. You're going to figure it out. You're brilliant and you're and enjoy it, you know, like go for it. Absolutely. And oh, by the way, when you have more money, invest in more real estate. Just a tip. <laughs> Very practical tip. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. I have another question for you. And, and we, we almost finishing. Time is gone real quick. I know that we, with this podcast, we're trying to do something. We we'd always kind of mention programs. I always mention women in mining and, and all these uh, bodies. 
that do an amazing work. But I'd like to ask you, what else do you think we can do to, to help reaching men-female equality and, and equity at work? Wow, it's such a big question. And I think, you know, on the individual basis, it really is, to me, it's about building the relationship. And it's about knowing, like, where did the other person come from? Ask for what you want. If you aren't being treated fairly to bring it up, I, I've spoken to so many women who've gone to HR and nothing is done, you know, about situations. So start looking for something else. I'm an entrepreneur. So it's easy for me to say that. I am not a corporate girl. I don't know about corporate politics. I didn't have to deal with that. So when you're an entrepreneur and you can create your own life, it's easier for you to maneuver, I think, because you know, if I bump into gentlemen who are unkind to me, who don't like me or whatever, I just move on. I don't have I don't have anything invested there that is at stake necessarily. And so I I have a different view of it. So I don't want to diminish in any way what women are going through who are in the corporate world. And, and as you go up the ladder, my understanding is that it does get more competitive and it can get, you know, more difficult to stand up for yourself because of that in certain situations. But saying that, and again, there are more and more corporations that are moving into gender equality and who do take this seriously. It's not just a gender washing, or if you want to call it that. And, you know, start looking at those companies and aligning yourself with them, connect with them on LinkedIn, you know, see if there's room for you to join companies like that. So take care of yourself, basically, in that regard. We are in the, um, so Paloma, this is one of the things to remember. I'm, I've been at this longer than you have. And one of my things when I was studying this is I went back and I said, wait a second, why aren't we already there? Like, didn't we fight this battle back in the civil rights movement in the 60s? <laughs> you know, we got the vote in 1920 in the United States. Why are we still fighting this? In the 80s, we had the equal rights, uh, you know, kind of thing going on where we had quotas and women. That's when I came into the brokerage business that opened those doors. But we only got so far. And now we've got this top of the pyramid now that we're trying to break through. So keep in mind, that we are still the pioneers. We are still the oppressed. We are still the ones who are having to do it first. And it's not going to be fair and it's not going to be easy. And we are going to have to fight some battles. But in the end, we're going to make a difference. And that's what's the most important thing. And that's why we, we it's, that's why I do what I do. And that's why I help as many women as I possibly can to get into the boardroom because that's where the power and the money are. That's where the biggest decisions are being made. And that's where we can really, really, really affect basically the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Michelle, I had more questions, but I think that message was actually giving me the goosebumps. So I think that's going to be our final reflection for this episode. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I apologize it took so long. But as I said, I think the timing is absolutely perfect for right now. Thank you very much for listening to Diary of a Female Leader. If you enjoyed our episode and want to contribute to sharing these incredible stories of females leading in business, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next interview. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn by searching Diary of a Female Leader. Until next time.